ladies and gentlemen, we're back. It's another episode of the Music Business Mentorship. I'm your host, John Scheel. And today we've got my very good friend, Chris Watt, on the program. Chris is a professor at Xavier University. He teaches at the Music Resource Center and winner of the 2020 Cincy Winter Film Festival for the soundtrack to a movie that he put together. He's an analog synth performer, Twitch streamer, live production, beat making, hip hop instructor, and the list goes on and on. What do you not do, Chris Watt? <laughs> Take no for an answer. Oh, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. I should also mention father of three, husband of one, and just an all around good guy, a fun, fun guy to know and knows a ton about gear. And we were talking before the show about all the things that he's done to develop the, the workstations and the work area that he's in now and uh for those of you watching you can see he's got quite a few modular analog synths behind him so tell me mr watt as you go by uh lovely shirt by the way um how did you get into music production like what brought you to the world of music stevie wonder master blaster <laughs> oh perfect amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i I tell this story from time to time. That record actually changed the trajectory of my childhood. Wow. That that's intense. Yeah. I, I can vibe with that because I love Stevie wonder so much. Uh, so how, how did that, was that, did that light the spark where you were like, I gotta, I gotta go play music. I gotta play keyboards. I gotta do something. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, whatever I was going through, whatever I was thinking at that point in time, when I heard that record, um, long story short, my uncle, uh, one of my dad's brothers, had basically a record shop in his house. And I would ask him to play records from time to time. And he would hand me records first before he let me dig in on my own. So that was one of the records he handed me. And when I heard it, like halfway through the song, I was like, the way I feel right now, I want to make other people feel like that by making music. And I was like, my mind was made up at that point. <laughs> like, that's the best way I can explain it is like my mind was made up and I didn't know how I was going to get there. But something about that piano, the reggae slash tone slash uh, whatever those frequencies were, because I'm big in the frequencies in that key uh, in particular, just touched me in a way that I'm like, I want to do that. Wow, that is that's awesome. That's inspiring. So from that point on, would you say you were a musician uh, first and then you developed into being a producer or you just said, it's all the same thing. Let's go. I want to, I want to do this, whatever it is, whatever it is, I'm doing it. Musician first, um, because that was a long time ago and we did, this is predating DAWs. This is predating, you know, Pro Tools or any other things that we've been using for years there was tape <laughs> then. So the easiest bar for entry being, you know, we didn't have the money to buy any of that stuff was getting my hands on a keyboard or a piano and pianos were the way to go. Um, so I would go to the library that had a piano in it. My, my parents' house had a piano in the one like living room that nobody could go in. So I would watch it, look at it all the time. I'm like, Ooh, <laughs> can I go? Can I go? You know, with the plastic on the couch and everything, right? It's 
thing in there. And that's all I wanted to do was learn that. That's to make. That's exactly where the piano was in my house. It was in the room where nobody was allowed to go except on special occasions. Yeah. Right. Like when you wanted to show it off and and nobody played it, like if nobody's playing it, why can't we go to, you know, it was that type of thing. (laughs) That's exactly the way it was for me. What, and, and I'll just share this because we're, we're very much on the same page. So I, I grew up, uh, I was, basically in a situation where I had a school that offered a Suzuki violin program very early on. I mean, very early on, they were doing recorders and, and, and wind instruments in, in kindergarten. But then uh, they said, listen, we've got this Suzuki violin thing. If you want to do it. Um, my parents said, Hey, that's cool. Until, you know, me and my sister got home and we're screeching uh, this violin, you know, all day long, but <laughs> right. for, something had me hooked real, real early. And then I switched schools and I'll never forget it. My older sister's friend was walking up the hallway towards the end of school. And I was going down the stairs and, and I'm thinking we're all supposed to be leaving. Why is she going up there? And she had this big black case and um, she opened it up for me. And it was a it was a saxophone. It was a tenor saxophone. And it was just the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. I just could not get over it. And I can still feel it when I think about that moment. And so from that moment on, I kept telling my parents, like, there's this thing, it's called a saxophone. And it is just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And we got to do that. So I started playing saxophone in the fourth grade. And I mean, lots of things happened. Somebody told me that I wasn't actually in the band as a horn player. I was just a backup musician. (laughs) So then I went and got a guitar because I needed to be in the band. Um, So, yeah, it's it's been a long road. But I'm with you. Like, I started off with the there was the piano in the other room. And you really you were just not really allowed to go in that room. But we always wanted to. And so when I get in there, I'd be able to make all kinds of, you know, fun things happen. And then eventually get yelled at for making too much noise and <laughs> you know I have to go off and do something else for your young listeners i don't know if this happens anymore but you know sound like the old man back in my day <laughs> yeah i feel the that. piano came with the house because nobody could get it out of the house so a lot of us in during that generation in 60s 70s probably the 50s as well coming up if you got into a new house some of those houses came with pianos because they'd never moved them out which is how we got grandfathered to have a piano it wasn't like you know we had the funds to go buy a new concert grand right it's like it just and it was a gift that came along with that yeah so like for you it's, it's one of these things that it was this magical unicorn that you had to ride you know yeah. that something in your brain clicked and like i like that so you're also a live performer. When did live performance get into your world? I mean, was it school or was it uh, friends? Yeah, a or- school chose. Um, I had a friend who I was making music for at the time. She was singing and I was playing like the background, you know, playing. A, we were doing like acoustic things, right? Didn't know any better. We were just rehearsing together. She would catch me playing something that she knew. So we started doing talent shows together and we did a few of them for like recreational centers and whatnot. And I got my first standing ovation in elementary school somewhere. And I was like, oh, this is the bug right here. This is, you know, to have a, a, 
a gymnasium full of your peers and friends that didn't know you did this thing and you did it and they ah, you know you turned into a celebrity after that and that's where that part started that's and then shortly after shortly after that um my as i grew up the the here's the flip side of the coin is i started becoming more of an introvert because i was honing my craft and i knew i needed to you know relieve myself of other distractions while i was honing my craft and it stuck around but the performance aspect i'm an introvert until i want to get on stage and then it's like the the bruce banner hulk type of thing yeah dr jekyll and mr hyde and then when the show's over i click back okay what could i have done better you know i go into what does the next show look like fast forward from there it was you know show after show after show got bigger started doing radio this is early this is internet cafes before internet was in anybody's home at this point and you would go to internet cafes to get dial up aol right like yeah um still hearing the fax machine noises and whatnot well a friend of mine his dad opened a little studio in the back of the internet cafe that they owned and he started a internet radio station and started letting us go in there thursday friday nights after school and do these little beat shows and we would freestyle and just hang out and that's when i got my first taste of like the casio sk1 and there was an mpc60 and then there was a tr707 and a 909 and his dad was the gearhead like you know early then so uh bud's place was the place to go on thursday and friday night and that's how that started before high school that is that's amazing i love that you were introduced to that particular gear my road kind of went where a buddy of mine's dad had the olympic white fender stratocaster it was kind of like that moment in wayne's world where you know the music plays and you're like oh it's this dream you know and and for me then it was Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan and all these blues guys. Um, but you went into the MPC and the SK one and the, and, and beat making probably evolved uh, at some point in your world, right from that early phase. Right. And, yeah. uh, and so how did that develop into a career with everything you do now? I didn't expect it to. It was it was never my intention to make it a full on career, to be honest. I wanted to do it and I knew I wanted to do it when I wasn't making money, because at the time, you know, born and raised in Chicago on the West Side, it was not something that you saw as a career. And my mom would never see music as a career. She's like, that's an outlet for you and take that outlet. She was supportive. in a way that she just stayed out the way, <clears throat> not necessarily buying me anything, not necessarily taking me anywhere or introducing me to anything. But she was just like, if you want to do that, you got you go do that. That's something that, you know, you really get into. And that's where that development came from of my own curiosity. I had gas from, a, you know, <laughs> a youngster, so to speak. And due to, I think, a lack of access and curiosity, 
I would spend a lot of time at the libraries looking for manuals for gear that was out then. So if I ever got my hands on the mat on the gear, I would be prepared for it beforehand, which was, I guess, an old soul type of thing for a kid to want to do. Yeah. And they were scarce. And I knew I was lucky to have a friend who had a dad who was into that. They were successful business people and he was into it. So by proxy, it was like three or four of us that got to hang out and, and learn that type of stuff early. And somebody fostered it for us to be able to do. And I didn't take it as that. So um, fast forward, as I got a little bit older, I was in, I was working machining and manufacturing. I did security before for Marshall Fields, Carson Perry Scott, if you remember that, Woolworth and whatnot back in the day. Oh, yeah. yeah. And as I was always doing music, even though I had a job, then I got into healthcare after getting laid off from manufacturing so long. I did work for Honda and Ford for a number of years. And the last time I got laid off, um, I got a severance package and I'm like, I'm going to buy my first keyboard. And I'm getting my own thing. And at the time I was bouncing around to different studios, I turned into a session musician almost. Um, not a not the traditional session musician, right? I was the guy that knew seventh chords. I was the guy that knew a few different things and I can play stuff by ear if they hummed it out or if I heard something else. So I developed that and I was working in different studios doing a, a for hire type of situation. It's like, I oh, give me 25 bucks. Yeah, I play some keys on this. And hey, so I became that guy in, in different situations and scenarios. And I kind of got tired of doing that when I wasn't allowed in the studio to work on my own thing and or I couldn't do it for free. So they were charging me regular price. And as I was building my own catalog of music and I said, I want to, you know, get that on my own. And around that time, a lot happened with my family here and there. And I ended up in Cincinnati. Well, literally, this is factual story. The day I moved to Cincinnati, um, it was October of 98, I want to say 98, 97, 98, somewhere around there. Regardless, three days before I moved here, Guitar Center in Forest Fair Mall had opened up and they were hiring people. And I met the crew there, like I'm just, just landed here. We went to go get something to eat. Oh, let's go to the mall. Let's see what the mall is like. And uh, shout out Thomas Graves, still a friend to my, of mine to this day. Met him there, we were just jamming. You know, got to talk and he said, you know, what are you doing here? And like, I just got here. Like, I'm from Chicago. Like, I literally just got here. I got something to eat and I came to Guitar Center. I said, you need a job? And I said, yeah, I need a job. <laughs> and, you know, a couple hours later, I was hired at Guitar Center as a warehouse person. They didn't need any more salespeople, but they needed people in the warehouse. And I was like, yeah, that was so it. Phew, you know, I started building relationships with manufacturers and reps and going to um, gear trainings and whatnot, along with the sales guys. So that fostered me to be able to build my own studio. And that's where it started. It was JX305, uh, Tascam tape recorders, DR202, SP202, and these, you know, little groove box things that I had in my room before I moved out my mom's house. I like got rid of the dresser and got a desk and lived out of some totes and whatnot. But I had my little home situation that I, I built over time. And that's where it 
I think that's where the the seed started to grow actually into something I was like, oh, I can do this. Like now that I have this, I can do the other stuff. And that's where that blossomed from afterwards. I love that. I there's so many echoes uh of my own life that kind of mirror that, you know, we're we're probably of a similar generation where we started off recording with the with the four track cassettes uh, and, and then moved into, you know, grew up into the, into the DAW world. But for me, it was live instruments because, you know, my friend's parents had them. And and then of course, all the stars of the eighties, nineties, I mean, hair, hair bands were big, you know, guns and roses. I remember hearing sweet child of mine for the very first time on 97 X in on a radio that you could only get 97 X in my sister's room. So I had to go in there and I heard this guitar <laughs> sound coming out and I was like, what is that? I gotta, I gotta hear that. And uh, so I would go in, in her room and try and wait by the radio and hear the, hear the song. And of course there was poison and, the, and, and, and my parents didn't have cable, so I didn't have MTV the same way everybody else did, but I would go over to friends houses and we would watch, you know, Michael Jackson and, and um, then all the various, videos that were coming out. So it was always like the instruments. Um, but then I remember getting like a guitar center or a musician's friend or some kind of catalog. Um, and, and I just became kind of obsessed with signing up for all the catalogs because <laughs> they would mail them <laughs> yeah. all to you. So I would get these catalogs like you would go to the library. I would sit there and read through all the catalogs to figure out what gear was happening, what gear, you know, was going out of, out of style. And of course things just changed so quickly and technology just moved so fast uh, that at a certain point, you know, once it was online, thankfully uh, we wasted a lot less paper, but man, I was (laughs) right there with you, like trying to figure everything out and try and put it together. And, and I remember going to a producer and being told, you know, how much it would cost me to produce an album in his place or, you know, and I I thought to myself, well, if I spent that amount of money on the gear myself, what could I do in my own house? And that kind of led me to my first LLC and, and writing a business plan and, and even my first time pitching music for ads, TV and film, which I know you've gotten into the sync world as well. Um, but you know, it, it's been a long road and <laughs> kind of bounced here and there, but it was never, never like, Oh, you can be a professional musician or you can be, you know, even, even the idea of going to law school to represent musicians came later. I didn't go to law school till I was 30. So I think the meandering path sometimes is a good one. And I mean, look at where you are now you teach, at the Music Resource Center, you're teaching at Xavier University, you're winning awards, and you're writing music for ads, TV, and film. And you mentioned doing that with uh, horror and and some of the drama stuff before we got on air. Um, tell me about how you how you developed into, you know, writing music for for others and and being uh, a producer in the commercial sense where you're producing tracks to sync. I was one of those people, same meandering path, right? Um, as bouncing around, traveling uh, different Midwest venues and and whatnot, performing, and I got wind of sync licensing through a friend. It wasn't till 2016. I was already, 
you know, streaming on Twitch and whatnot. And it never dawned on me at all. Like through all of this, I never thought about it. And I got wind of it and somebody got ready to be uh, nominated to be president in 2017. And I said, um, if this person becomes president, they're going to take away all the grant money and all the Pell Grants and all this other stuff for school. So if this happens, I'm going to go back to school to get my music degree. By this time, I had several licenses and different things in healthcare, and I was doing that full time. I've been in healthcare for a very long time. Like I can write my ticket in there. But I, I knew that if I went back to school and I was going to have to pay student loans, it was going to be for something I wanted to do with my life period. And I figured, let me get my music production degree and uh, shout out Full Sail University. Took me in 2017, graduated top of my class, valedictorian, one of the oldest ones. I was 40 years old um, when I went. I was 42 when I graduated. And same as you. I didn't go back till way later to, you know, figure the rest of these things out. And yeah, shout then out to they really helped me. Path and non-traditional students. That's, that's yeah, awesome. shout out to the creatives. Figure yeah. the business out. If you have the creative part, the creative part will work itself out. That's a part of who you are. The business aspect is where you're able to, you know, I just want to pay my bills. I don't need to be famous. I just want my kids to live good and take a couple of vacations a year and whatnot. And that was the goal. And I had got the full sale, smashed through a lot of the programs. And I, I really got into some of the instructors there that were already in sync that were doing this full time for like the NFL, MLB, uh, MLS and so forth. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. That's, that was my my next evolution. Um, being an introvert, when they said, you know, you can do this from home. <laughs> you, you don't have to go anywhere. And I was like, oh, I get to stay home with my wife and kids. And, you know, I retired from traveling around doing the music thing when I met my wife. And I knew that I wanted to settle down. And that wasn't going to be a part of it. I wanted, you know, them to be the center of my universe um, along with music in parallel. Like, they're still number one. There's no picking between the two of them for me. And got there, started networking with professors and other students and learning the business and ins and outs of it. It was a good two year struggle of not getting anything, but still working, building the catalog and learning the lingo and learning how things go. People uh, need to understand that sync music is very different from traditional popular music, charting music in format and style and context and so forth. And when I started learning all of that stuff, it was, it opened up a whole nother avenue of music for me. And you didn't have to be in a box because I loved all these different things. I'm a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. I'm a huge Earth, Wind & Fire fan. I'm a huge, uh, we already said Stevie Wonder. We, we can run down the list. Like the usuals, I call them the usual suspects, like the Beatles, like Pink Floyd, like Deep Purple is my ultimate band. If I could go back in time to see them live, I would love to go see Deep Purple because that was one of the first bands that I learned about that actually had keyboardists that showed out in rock. And it was the organs and synths and different things that they were using. And then Parliament Funkadelic. Oh, yeah. Shout out to Bootsy Collins uh, right now, Funk Not Fight and everything that they're doing. Um, and that allowed me to get out of this box of just hip hop that allowed me to get out the box of just you know, rap music. I'm a six foot three, 230 pound black dude that plays piano and you like, you automatically think hip hop. 
but I wanted part of that was breaking the stigma and, and loving all these different genres of movies and films and TV shows and other stuff and picking those things out. It just became another addiction of like, I want to figure this out and how to do it. And failing forward got me, you know, pretty far over time. It was nothing that was easy. It was nothing that was overnight, but I plugged away at it every day and I love it. I don't want to do anything else at this point. That's awesome. <laughs> I I love it too. I want to I want to say a shout out to Bootsy um and and Uwe his son um good good friend of mine. Um but I I I love the fact that Cincinnati there's all this like the start of your conversation and and rounding it out with with the Bootsy reference. It's it's got this Cincinnati vibe. So your your um your world kind of opened up when you came to uh, Cincinnati with the Guitar Center, and then all of this uh, stuff in full sale, uh, bringing it to another level. Uh, that speaks to just your perseverance, but also to the fact that being a musician is a state of being. It's not something you sort of choose. It sometimes chooses you, and it's part of who you are. I think it's amazing that your your family and your music are so central to your world, which um, leads me to ask my question, which I talk about purpose a lot, but what do you feel like your purpose is both, you know, as a family man and educator and a musician, how do those, um, those things align? Cause they seem like you, you've got it kind of dialed in. Um, what do you feel like your mission is and your purpose and what gets you up every day? It turned into creating more sync composers, right? The the industry has changed so much. Everything is streaming. Everything is released yesterday. You know, what you do is extremely important with the business aspect of it, learning contracts and different things of how to navigate that. And honestly, a handful of us that are doing sync, even though I'm not getting every placement, it doesn't, I don't worry about getting every placement. I want the correct ones. I want the ones that fit my values and structure and so forth but we can't keep up and other creatives younger creatives even especially the younger creatives need to know all of the resources and tools they have at their fingertips to be able to create the same career that i've created for myself to provide for them and theirs you don't have to bow down so to speak to the labels and and push an agenda of this one particular type of music in order to pay your bills. And if you want to go be famous, wonderful. Go be famous and chase that. That's that's awesome. I would never shoot down anybody's dream of doing that. This is just a different path, I think, for more people who are creatives, because honestly, a lot of creatives are, are, I think it's my personal opinion, a lot of creatives are self-conscious to begin with. And if you can have, if you can still live your art and have uh, anonymity at the same time, it's the marrying of both of those, I think. And yeah. since our generations weren't told we can do this as a career. And I want to tell people you can do this as a career. You just have to know, you have to reverse engineer and deconstruct how to get where you want to be at. And as far as my personal life with my family, I wanted to create things that had generational wealth for my kids. So everything that I do that my name is on, their name is on as well. So even when I'm gone, if it's, you know, because musicians make more money after they're dead. So if somebody picks it up for a 
Marvel movie, a Disney movie, and it's one of my songs and they can, you know, pay for whatever they wanted to do from the royalties of that. That's a goal of mine because we don't have, you know, 401ks and, and there's no more golden parachutes. So B is, I think it's unique as a creator that we can create our own parachutes yeah. and we can pass that parachute to, uh, to generations below us, um, behind us, not below us, but behind us. Mm-hmm. And that's my, that's what gets me up in the morning. Sincerely, the music gets me up in the morning, but knowing that it has a purpose other than just, oh, that's nice. That's dope. Yeah. Working with purpose is, is doing that. And some of the kids that I teach at uh, MRC, shout out MRC, Colin Wally and everybody involved, that this is a very unique thing for a special group of kids that we were those kids. And now we have the ability, because we say it all the time, like, if I had that, <laughs> if I had yeah. that, oh, yeah. now it's like, it's our job to teach them, you have that. <laughs> yeah. And we go from there. Yeah. Well, if that answers, I hope that answered your question. It, it does. Um, I mean, I, first of all, it resonates with me that you're a father. I think sometimes, uh, at least when my kids weren't teenagers, uh, <laughs> and they told me how <laughs> yeah. bad of a job I'm doing when they were young, I felt like, <laughs> I felt like being a father was the, was like my mission. You know, it was, it was, uh, it really was like being, being a good dad What meant, you know, it, t- it took on a lot of responsibility and, it's it it dovetailed so nicely with teaching guitar and teaching i've i've taught foreign languages i've i've taught obviously law and and business and music business but uh you know when you're teaching from a place of love and you're and you're trying to give not because you want to get but because you want to raise these kids up right you want them to be able to fly and do something i mean that that became my purpose you know in addition to you know, paying the bills to, to feed them. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. um, but, you know, it, it speaks to using, maximizing your skills and talents in the service of others, of your community, of the, of the future generations. And I often think about this, you know, I, I used to lead a 10 piece band. Uh, half of the band were all-stars uh, from school of rock. The other half were CCM university of Cincinnati uh, college conservatory of music folks. Uh, and the, the fact is I was the oldest member by far of the band, but it was the best talent, most talented band I've been a part of pound for pound. I mean, everybody was just unbelievably talented and my role was like, okay, now you have all of this. What do you do with it? And that has led into, you know, this, this podcast and this, this course that I'm pulling together and, and all the things that that I'm doing in my professional life are really okay. So you can go home and learn a song on YouTube like that. I had to go listen to the record and wear out the grooves, or I had to play the tape over and over again, or worse than that, I had to go take a cassette recorder, wait for it to play on the radio, capture it, you know, and then listen to it and wear it out and learn. The, the struggle learn is the real. <laughs> so you got it, you know. Not to say that they have it easy because they don't. They have a lot of other challenges, and and the internet has a, sort of a double-edged sword. They're they're presented yeah. with all the information all at once. Uh, and it's harder and harder to cut through the noise. There's just so much content that's created every single day. Um, but it's my hope uh, that guys like you and me can point the way to to a path of, of less resistance for those who are coming up in our wake, you know? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, truthfully, the audience of this podcast is me at 19. You know, when I thought I had the world, I thought I knew everything, but I really didn't know everything. There was so much that I still needed to know. And and so the course, the the everything that I'm doing professionally right now is really geared towards that young up and coming musician who's got maybe the world at their fingertips and all the wealth of the world's knowledge right there on their phone but what do they do with it? So mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach people to write a plan, you know, think about things in the long term, which it, it's great. You mentioned thinking about things from the long term perspective of, you know, royalties that can that can pay for your children, generational wealth. And I don't think that there's enough musicians and composers, folks in the in the creative aspect of it that think that way and think long-term and think about it in terms of business and planning and legal and logistics, all of that sort of stuff. And I mentioned this in my, uh, in one of the earlier episodes of this podcast, where I think when you're trained as a musician or you've spent all these years honing your craft, you kind of get yourself in a habit of thinking that this is just for my development instead of for my bank account. Um, you know, you, you spend so much time in the practice room or so much time learning an instrument that you forget that you've got to go out and gig with it in order to get someone to pay you. Or, you know, you've got to record the record and you've got to distribute it and you've got to distribute it as widely as you can. And there's a lot of talk about how major labels don't go that route. I'm I'm kind of with you on that. And I'm, I'm with with the independents for sure, because they're my clients. Uh, But I will say that, as you said, if you want to be famous, I mean, you might have to jump on somebody else's rocket ship in order to get there. And they spent a lot of money building that rocket ship. And maybe you don't have the assets to build that rocket ship, but maybe that rocket ship is the right path for your career, as long as you do it in a safe and and legal and protected way. And I think um, when things go wrong, you see the, the Taylor Swift situation where she wasn't happy with what happened with her masters. And so she went and re-recorded them all. Not every artist has the luxury of being able to do that. Um, but I guess we can talk a little bit about your career and, and obstacles in your career. Have you faced anything like that where you've had to re-record something or, or maybe in those early days when you were going to the studio and you were just doing, you know, for 25 bucks, recording some keys on somebody's uh, somebody's track. Did you ever face a situation where you thought, man, I should have signed a contract that gave me some kind of royalty or some additional revenue stream or some ownership of the project? Or, you know, tell me about that. Tell me about your struggles. Cause I, I know there's folks out here who love everything you've done, but now tell me where it got hard for you and how you got through that. Uh, segue. I heard something from you. I don't know if you remember if you told everybody this or just me this. Finding the cross section between passion and profit or passion and professionalism. Um, I've reflected on that quite a bit. That's one. For two, um, going to full sale, becoming a composer, reflected me back to my days in healthcare where I was in service. When I started looking at being a musician as being in service of the people and projects, it really changed my perspective on it. Before I had that perspective to where it was, like you said, honing the craft, this is for me, this is for how this makes me feel in a very selfish mindset almost when it came to 
especially um, expanding my network, that changed a lot. So learning you're actually being in service of this thing rather than being service of yourself. Before I had that, it was a lot of look at me, look at me, look at me, which is a common thing for people who I didn't know how to present in a way that was not salesmanish, <laughs> like telemarketer kind of kind of deal. And I had to learn that of this is about the project. This is about being in service of where it's going to end up and the people that it's going to affect in the meantime. I counted between 2019 and 2020 uh, before the blip happened. I had 68 rejection letters from various music libraries, from various music supervisors, from you name it. My first break for professional work came from a dog shelter in Florida who wow. was doing a donation, a adoption campaign, completely free. A friend of mine was doing the visuals for it, taking the pictures and videos of the dogs. And she said, we need music. <laughs> Can you do the music? And I said, sure. I need professional work and learning from that experience that went on for probably almost a year. They had a ton of music for these dogs and it was fun. I, I mean, they had specific criteria that they wanted for each one to sell the story or tell the story. And that was one that broke the ice. However, over the years, the rejections kept coming. And I put them in a fireplace of passion. I put them in this thing that it kindled the work still being done because I took those no's, I end up getting some not right now's. I got a lot of not right now's. And I used that to follow up with them and say, what could I have done differently or better? Or we're just, are we just not compatible? from what you heard from me, from what you saw, you know, this is going to be a relationship. So treating it as such, like these relationships, I had to learn how to curate those relationships more than anything else and not worry about the work. And the downfalls will come. It's going to happen. That's life. We're human. It's going to happen. There's been a ton of adversity faced. There's been a ton of missed opportunities. I was, you know, at, Guitar Center, and I was like, I should have gotten paperwork because I end up hearing some of that work later on. Or what, you know, tend to be, it could have been my work, it could have not been, because you could have had somebody else replay what I played. I wasn't that fancy. It was just one of those things. And don't get discouraged by that. If those no's turn you off to it, reflect, pivot to what you really want to do. Because those no's never bothered me, but it was, I wanted to get less and less of them. It started off with all no's, and then out of 10, it was eight, and then it was six, and then it was three, and then I stopped getting, then I'm like three or four no's, you know, for every 10 opportunities that I go after now, and it took time. It took perseverance. It just took the work, and always ask somebody, you know, what what's different uh what what could happen next time what would make this more successful because in my my opinion that person 
is just like your audience, right? We're not, we're not going to please everybody with every song. That one single is going to resonate with a group of people. And you find one person out of that group and you get as much information from them as possible about what resonated with them with that group. So if you treat your business constituents and opportunities like that, well, with your nose, well, what does this group like? What does this group need? Because we're all in service again. You're not going to sell me gas when I got a full tank of gas. Right. <laughs> Just I don't need it right now. So treating these things as that um, with dealing with personal demons at the same time, insecurities and questioning if you really should be doing it when you're not making any money doing it and you're driving Lyft and DoorDash to make the ends meet, but you're still plugging away at it at night. It's one of those things that it's a test of character almost. And when you get to the other side of learning where your potential is, that's a plateau that you hit. You coast there, you learn more, you level up and you continue to where you're, you're going to be happy. So for me, the adversity was, we're all like um, speed bumps in the road, but knowing where I came from and how far I've come, I didn't think I had hit my apex yet. I knew I could go further just by getting the information from those people. You know, if you want to shoot, you want to make more free throws, you got to shoot more free throws. Yeah. You, proper form for different things is what is being in service, what is needed at that time. If we don't need a shooter, we don't need a shooter. If we don't need a QB, we don't need a QB. If we don't need a center, we don't need a center. We have these things already. Find the communities as to where you fit and you're going to service that community. That's how you create longevity in any creative aspect of being a professional. That's what I think. And yeah, my adversity was a lot. I just, I didn't dwell on it. I tried to learn from it and say, you know, specifically to those people, when you get a no, ask why. You Nine times out of 10, you're not going to get a response, but that one could be the key that you needed to make it less and less no's. You know, I love everything you just said. I love how you said you got a lot of not right nows, which I think in the sync world is is pretty common. I mean, if you get a if you get an outright no, um, it, it's usually a not right now. It's just phrased as a no. But I wanted to point out, and this is just sort of leapfrogging off of what you're saying here. So as you as you just said, sometimes that when you ask why and you get a response back, that could be the key. I'm currently listening to an audiobook by Chris Voss, who uh, the book is called Never Split the Difference, and it's on negotiation. And he was a, an FBI uh, hostage negotiator. Um, he teaches courses on negotiation. He's on Masterclass. He's on YouTube. He's all over the place. Uh, really brilliant guy. But part of the chapter on, you know, it's sort of like there used to be a book called Getting to Yes. Well, there's for him, like no is the start of the negotiation. And so what you just said there reinforces that, that when someone says no and you say, well, what could I have done differently? First of all, you're right, because proper form and, and and it may just be a not right now kind of a thing uh, that, but you can learn from that when they do give you a, some feedback and that could be the spark that turns into a whole new relationship. And I think if I'm hearing you correctly and and from what I've gathered over the years, it only takes a few key relationships that can really change the game 
So you kind of have to be out there consistently networking or consistently pitching for sync in order to get to that next level, because you never know a friendship, a relationship uh, that you develop could turn into the rest of your life and could be really the game changer that your career needed or that you needed personally. So, Mm, yeah, one of, um, one of my coolest relationships, another gearhead, uh, shout out Jonathan Mayer. I've talked about him a couple of times. He helped facilitate one of my biggest achievements, which is creating music, an entire soundtrack for a video game for uh, Facebook. I uh, can't say specifically what it is. It's not out yet, but just know like my relationship with him, he dug my music. We talked synthesizers a lot, like just back and forth. And he called me up one day. He said, I got an opportunity that may fit you. I heard some stuff from you that I liked already. I like your vibe. You know, here's what we're doing at Facebook. Um, what do you think about this? And I'm like, yes, please. May I have another. <laughs> yeah and it i never went after that relationship like i'm gonna get anything after him he was just another gearhead like i was and we enjoyed each other's company and uh he respected my work and liked it and we went forward and i created opportunities from that for several of my personal friends you know who we've been working together for years and i'm like one day i'm gonna make that phone call guys and we're going to we're going to get some we're going to do something really special and we did that special thing it took a really long time it was a lot of work but it was a lot of fun and you guys will be hearing about it uh hopefully soon 2024 that is killer but that again those relationships and taking that um originally i got a note from john originally and i was like ah it's cool that's but you do have this synthesizer i want to get like, what do you think about that? Should I spend my, and that developed into a thing. And I, I never went after it like that, but he was a really, really cool dude and um, helped me get the, probably what's going to be to date, not the biggest of my career, but to date is probably the biggest opportunity. And we had a ball doing it. So, and I That's learned cool. a lot from listening to you as well, like about, you know, the negotiation, so to speak, the, the kindling of the fire that you want to keep burning in in whom whomever you know um friend of mine shout out mark kilmore amazing sound designer for call of duty games and a bunch of different stuff like credits go on and on and on he says make friends the work will come i never forgot it from when he first told me that and i was like all right that's cool and that's what's been happening happen i've been making friends and the work is getting done and we we enjoy doing it that's awesome i love that i love to hear that that is um just reinforces so many things that i truly believe about this this business and you know as we as we go into the future with you know the challenges i i really do believe that it's it's hard to be a creator in today's world because there is so much content it's harder and easier. It's a double-edged sword. You know, you can create something in your bedroom and you can put it on YouTube tonight, but it might not get heard ever because there's just billions of pieces of content on, on YouTube right now. So I guess this leads me into, first of all, I, I love that the relationship building is, is so fundamental. It's so cornerstone to the development of your career, but 
but also it enriches life. And it kind of goes with that, that back to what you originally said, where you heard master blaster and you're like, whatever that feeling that I'm getting right now is what I want to give to the world. I want to, that's what I want to do. Uh, and that, I mean, that's the thread that runs through all of this, but it, it is about the relationships and it's the relationships, not with your friends and your fans and your colleagues professionally um, and personally that I think create the career, the work will come. I, it's, it's neat to hear it all woven in your story like that, but I, I can't get away from the fact that there are billions of pieces of content out there every day and, and it is a challenging career and I guess I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody. Um, if you had a magic wand or if you had the power to change anything about the music business, what would it be and what, why? I would encourage the industry to marry what we felt about physical product with the ones that are streaming. I feel like I missed the days where I could go to the store, buy a CD or tape, go out to the car, pop it, unwrap it, you know, read the credits, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you gotta go hunting. We would read the credits while the album is playing. You wanna know who's on there and so forth. You wanna go pick your buddy up. Hey, I just got this album. Oh, I didn't get a chance to get it. Like, I think there's a niche market for music that the underground scene that like the punk scene is huge for that like they're still pressing vinyl and they're still being played in different places i think i would like to see that more mainstream so direct to artists could survive more financially and get more exposure um you hit the nail on the head like it's it's a double-edged sword it is very easy to get the exposure however the there's more fish in the pond now. So the chances of you being on the north side of the pond swimming and somebody's walking on the south side of the pond, they, they're they not gonna see you for a while. And if another fish catches their attention on the east side as they're walking around, you know, it, it takes even longer for them to, to find your content, which your content may be perfect for them or you feel like it may be perfect for them. So right. for me, I would like to see physical product, I understand it, uh, come back and have people take pride in that ownership. It's like making a cup of tea, right? Like you have to wait for the tea bag. It, it, it will not be tea until the tea bag releases the tea into the water. Yeah. That, that's my, my, my magic wand wish uh, question is like, I would like to see physical demand and want from people to come back to to have these personal experiences because having one-offs is one thing versus um we had it to where you know if you had a record that was you didn't see since 77 that was still sealed in the package it was like the mona lisa for you right it's like <laughs> i know what's on this because i have one that's open but this one's not open they don't get that same experience because as soon as it hits online, it's available to everybody. There's no exclusivity. There's nothing special. The music is special. Don't get me wrong, but having this and having, you know, even in the independent space, it's, it's something special about not everybody having access to it. I, to my, that's my opinion. I, everybody may not feel like that, but if we can create that, 
again for the for the communities and and help and some of that helps um increase or replace the devaluing of music now because it's so readily available i think that exclusivity which is what they're doing with nfts and whatnot right we can that's a whole nother thing but the exclusivity of that helps it retain the value like a work of art because what we do are we're creating works of art yeah I, I happen to really love vinyl and I do try to collect vinyl for every one of every one of my clients that actually put presses a vinyl. I make sure that I, that I get one and then I get it signed. Um, I, I really, I really resonated with what you said there because I thought instantly when you were talking about unwrapping something. Now, when I was, when I was growing up, vinyl was out there obviously, but but you know what I actually played as a as a young teenager were cassettes, and I can actually remember the smell of the cellophane <laughs> and the and like pulling it out of the bin and and having them having to open it up, get it out of the big plastic security thing that they had, and then taking oh, yeah. it out to the car <laughs> and the the cellophane. And when you ripped it open, like hearing the creak of the plastic as it opened and then you get the cassette out and then you un sometimes you get to unfold like the the little cassette uh the 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 wrapper the i don't know yeah, yeah the, and and they were like then you'd get to read the lyrics and they're like on this you know piece of paper this big <laughs> and you're going to go through it all but it, it just it had like a fresh pressed you know smell to it and and you're listening to it usually in a car or you know on a boom box and and you're just there was there was a visceral content that when you started talking about it, it just came flooding back to me i hadn't thought about in such a long time and i really do i really respect that i think that having that kind of collectible experience and physical product experience uh, is a way to create some exclusivity and to create a pathway. And maybe for some of you artists who are out there listening, think about that in terms of your merchandising, because people do want something tangible. Obviously, they come to support you at your shows, or or they may they may click like or something on your Facebook page or your Instagram. But you know, liking and following and subscribing and all that stuff. Although we want you to do that with this podcast and everybody. Um, it's not the same as having, you know, shaking someone's hand or or being there at the merch table and talking to them or buying their physical product, knowing you might not ever get to meet them, but maybe one day, you know, you, you get to meet your hero and they sign your your album or your cassette or your t-shirt or whatever. It creates a different fan experience. And I think it creates a different relationship, if you will, having something tangible. Uh, to take with you. So for those of you out there thinking about it, you know, vinyl is still a thing. They are still pressing. You can find ways to do short runs of vinyl. And I would encourage people to do that. Um, it's, it is collectible. Yes. It's destroyable in a way that you, you know, the streams are not, you can wear out a vinyl. You can leave a vinyl in the hot sun and you can ruin it. And I know <laughs> yeah. I've been there, but there's something magical Trump about that experience. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Yeah. So I, 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 I think that's fascinating. It goes actually very well with the question. If you had a magic wand, because it is a magical experience. It really is. It It is man. Every time, like um, I'll never forget. Here, here's, here's my magic moment. Right. 
I had um, saved up my little money over time. We had moved to uh, the south side of Chicago. I was fairly young. There was this store that was like two blocks away from me. That was a little bodega type of store, right? Like deli sandwiches and just a little corner store type of thing. And they sold tapes in there like that had came out. And that was the closest place that I could walk to because, you know, I was really, really young and I couldn't go anywhere to get anything. And I I heard, um, I saw Tupac, like Tupacalypse Now. And I remember gathering my little change. It was like $3.80. It was like nothing. This place was selling like tapes that had been open already. And I get my tape. And I'm like, I know my mom's not going to let me listen to this. So I'm just going to play it when she's not home. I'm going to hide the cassette in my pillowcase. <laughs> but I remember I couldn't wait till I got home and I didn't have a Walkman or anything on me. Right. I had a dual cassette deck of Morant's big silver thing, you know, at home, yeah. right. That I, that my only way to have tapes and pre-cell phone and, and all of this stuff. I walked out of the store and I was like using a pen to open the top of the, the plastic because like, mm. I couldn't tear it open. I, and you pull it apart and I flipped it in and I put the tape in my pocket and I read the J card all the way home. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I knew like all the credits, the names of the songs and whatnot, because contrary to popular belief, kids, the tape doesn't tell you what song is playing. <laughs> you just yeah. have to know what song is playing, right? There's no screen saying this is the song that's going right now. So, you know, unlike, like radio and whatnot. But I remember, you know, memorizing that before I got home. So when I got a chance to play it, I put my headphones on because mom couldn't hear it. And I knew she couldn't hear it. It was like my first tape recursion on it. And pop it in and I'm just like, wow, just th at this time. And creating that in some form or fashion. It started with video games to where all video games started becoming, you know, digital download. And we didn't stand in line anymore at midnight to get the new Call of Duty or Halo. And it's the line started at eight o'clock and it's around the block at the mall. And you're got to wait till midnight for the store to open up anyway. But these created experiences. Yeah. And really yeah. I'm not demeaning the experiences that they have nowadays on the Friday music release for, you know, all streaming. But these, I want my kids and some younger people to have that experience and be able to resonate like you and me are doing right now. You had that moment for you. I had that moment for, and, but it, it, it creates this connection. You know what I'm talking about because you live that experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, waiting yeah. in line reminds me of That's waiting question, in line. By the way. Oh, thanks. <laughs> waiting in line reminds me of waiting in line for tickets. There was a Ticketmaster outlet at the Beachmont Mall, and it was this sort of back back alley kind of place where you'd have to wait. And and people would sit there like all night long and wait for the, you know, whatever it was, 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. release when they could actually start printing tickets. And I remember going on several occasions waiting in line for concert tickets, you know, with people obviously of like mind. They, they wanted to be at the same show and we were there sharing this experience of waiting out in the cold all night long <laughs> waiting for them to <laughs> yep. open the door to get in to get these concert tickets and you can still maybe do occasional concert ticket waiting i know um the taylor swift fans had their 
their challenges this summer, but it's <laughs> it's not like it was. It's not the same as it's like sitting there. Um, so it's an experience, a shared experience. I do. I will say on the plus side of of Taylor Swift, there were people who were waiting in line in Cincinnati a mile. It was like a mile long where they were waiting for yeah. the merch, not even the show or the ticket. They were just waiting in the merch line when her trailers rolled in a couple days before the show. That oh, was wow. that was impressive. I mean, I had a friend who works as a lawyer downtown and she could see from her window looking down uh, and the line stretched all the way from like Paycor Stadium all the way down around the Underground Railroad Freedom Center. I mean, this line was and just kept like going snaked yeah. all around downtown from people just waiting in line for the experience. And I got to give props to Taylor for bringing back a lot of a lot of magic to to the music and the music business and standing up for artists and doing it her own way. I mean, there's a lot yeah. to love there. So uh, even if that's not your genre, you got to look uh, at people who are doing things in a good, positive, healthy, successful way. And uh, I think she's I think she's a model for a lot of things in this business. Um, certainly fairness and artist rights and and that sort of stuff. Um, but getting back to our our experience, um, would you say that uh, today's kids, um, you know, they don't have the cassettes. They don't have necessarily as much vinyl, but. What what are things that you see because you deal with young people in, in music? What are some of the things that they are doing right? And and what are some of the things that you love about what's coming up in the future? They're fearless in their creativity. I I don't fault them for not having the same previous acumen uh expertise as we do in, in previous years of music. However, it doesn't keep them on the hamster wheel, so to speak. They can create stuff that they've never heard before. And then we get to tell them, hey, this sounds like this. Oh, wow. It does. That means it sounds good. Mm. It means that if this was a number one hit from, you know, Michael Jackson or Prince or something, and your music reminds me of that, that means you carry the same spirit of musicianship and care as to what you did. And yeah. even without knowing it, um, I think a misconception, a personal flaw of mine is that I thought they had to know it in order to achieve it. But it's, I guess it's a spirit and energy of creativity that allows some of them to reach those heights at an early point. And they're not apologizing for it. Um, they want us to come in and accept their way <laughs> of doing some of the stuff. And all I want to do sincerely is put the, you know, I want to put the icing on the honey bun. I want to put the, the candles on the cake. I don't want to mold you to sound like me. I don't want you to mold you to sound like, you know, what we did in the seventies, right? It's, it, there's a, we're all using the same 12 notes. However, the rhythmic patterns and different things that they're doing is, um, I didn't think I would see that out of some of them. And once I got out of my own way of the traditional way of teaching, you know, like if you teach guitar or piano, oh, you have to learn it this way. But if they're getting the same results in their way, let me see what your way has to offer. Maybe it'll help me down the line to continue to do what I'm doing. And I think there's a, there is a 
a uniqueness to that, a specialty to that, that once they hone the things that they don't know and match it with that, instead of fighting it, we're going to see another boom in several genres of music in the independent space that we haven't seen in a long time. So I'm excited about that. And I think that they have that and, and they have community as well. I, I, I feel like social media and so forth is creating communities for artists that where they can thrive. Um, Twitch is a very good place for that. I see it all the time. I'm a part of several music groups and collaborate uh, collaborative efforts on communities on Twitch and discord and so forth. So having access to like-minded people that you could stand in line with for a concert that you can't because you're not in the same city, but Hey, they're coming to your city next month. They're in my city this week. We'll talk about the show after they have the show at your place, you know, in, in your city. I think that's something that's really unique with technology and, and how we've developed as humans um, and society and space. That's I'm looking forward to seeing what's next. That's awesome. That's awesome. That really is an optimistic worldview and I love it. It, it resonates with me. I think that, and I, I heard one of my mentors, uh, Kathy Heller, who's got a great podcast. Uh, I think she said this, uh, that one of the key elements of resilience is optimism and, uh, you know, people who have grit by and large, all the people who you would say, oh, that person really has persevered and has grit. They have a fortitude to them to overcome things that it's based and rooted in optimism. And so it's, it's not, um, it's not that empathy or optimism is soft or mushy. It's actually a fundamental strength uh, to look at the world and and look at how the communities can develop online and how we can be closer together. It's looking at the bright side. Um, and and I, I love that. I think that's amazing. I think that that leads me to, to ask, um, you know, you talked about the, the external world and, and the, the future and the young folks, but what about for you personally, what's next for you? I know you told me before we started that you're going to be doing some live performances. Um, and I, I want to hear about that. Tell me about what's next for you personally and professionally. Uh, personally continue to be a good father and husband. However, that may look, uh, I got one teenager. I got two preteens that's heading into teenagers. The struggle um, is real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm already feeling the pressure. Please send wine. Um, <laughs> it doesn't really matter what kind. <laughs> we'll need more as time goes on. That That's first and foremost. The professional aspect of it is uh, honestly chasing more placements hoping other people get placements, their first ones. I love hearing about people's first placements and utilizing the technology that can benefit the community, creative community. If we stand gilded together, bonded together to um, create almost like a union, so to speak, for the algorithm to not be our downfall, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes and total it, sense, yeah. Yeah, there's still strength in numbers. You know, it's still ruled by the people. Wherever the people go, we saw the shift from Facebook to Instagram to Vine to TikTok to X to, you know, wherever the people are is where they want to go, you know, where they want to be because that's where everything revolves around. And professionally, I want to continue to do that. 
and yeah, just whatever that looks like. I do have a few. I want to get, uh, you know, my bucket list things out of the way. Uh, I'm heading into season four of my podcast. I want to do music for a 2K video game. Um, I know a couple people over there that are hopefully that, that'll work out sometime soon. And the rest is to help my friends win. I'm I'm really into, I'm really that guy. Like, I really want to see my friends get exposed to the things I've been exposed to that they didn't know exist or they know exist now and facilitate them creating some things that they can, they can have trophies on their shelves as well. Cause we can't take it with us. The rest is just like, let's enjoy it. Let's, let's treat each other right. Let's do right by each other. Let's just learn as much as we can together. And the things we can't control, we can't control them, but the things we can, let's do that, you know, and in the most positive way possible. That's, that's it. I love that. That's really what this music business mentorship is all about is, is seeing other folks win and uh, as someone who just got his first placement this year, I'm, I'm, I'm on the same boat with you. I want to place more music. Um, but I, I wanted to mention, you do have a show coming up uh, at Treasure Tronics, which I just yeah. love the name of that. It's a synth shop in Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us how you got involved with Treasure Tronics. Tell us what you're going to, a little bit of overview of what you're going to do. Cause it's just, it's magical. That whole, that whole vibe, it, a synth shop, Name Treasure Tronics seems really cool. So yeah. shout out to them. But you yeah, do a live performance there. John Hardig owns Treasure Tronics. Uh, another gearhead who opened a synth consignment shop. It's almost like a, so to speak, it's like a Goodwill, right? For synthesizers and whatnot. You can bring stuff in. You can sell stuff there. They have performances. He's a dealer for a few different uh, companies that are out there. He's a repairman, so if you got some stuff that's broken, he can take a look at it, fix it for you. He did that for me when we first met on some tape decks and whatnot. That was great. And he started having shows at the at the shop. He'd do a monthly synth jam, first Friday of the month, where a bunch of the synth nerds get together and they just play out. And now it's evolved into this thing where Tim Kaiser performed there twice. And, <clears throat> excuse me. He's a cool dude. He makes his own instruments, makes a lot of cool noises and sounds and stuff. And he started to do individual shows. So he asked me, you know, if I do what I do on Twitch, which is live improv music, so to speak, right? We start with a theme for the night and we play whatever comes out, whatever happens, happens. I answer questions along the way, right? If you want to know about a particular synth or cables or modulation or techniques or anything that I'm using. I try to teach that and use that as I'm learning it because I'm still a newbie. I'm still green. I'm like a sophomore in the synth world of modular, especially building one from scratch like this one. Uh, Create audio. I built that from scratch. Love it to death is what I'm going to be using next week. But in particular, what I'm going to be doing is a a genre called ModBap. And started by uh, Corey Banks. He owns a company called ModBap Modular. They make modules. And it's a very hip hop esque thing that hasn't been seen in the modular world before. And I fell in love with it. Uh, shout out Mr. Dibs for getting me hooked on modular stuff and Corey Banks for providing the modules that they do. So go check them out. <clears throat> Two good friends of mine at this point. And it's hip hop mixed in a way where you get like 
imagine the Star Wars cantina if you put Wu Tang in the room. Nice, I love it. Right, it's, <laughs> that's what it, it's going to sound like. Uh, I'm not plugging, but y'all can check me out on Bandcamp, Mr. Watt Bandcamp. I got the last album that I put out uh, off the grid is out there. It's a modular album. I love meditative music, so part of it is like this meditative thing, yoga music. And then we sprinkle a lot of boom bap drums, reversing stuff, crazy weird sounds made with electricity that you can then sample and manipulate again. And the thing that makes it so special to me, more so than anything else, is like we have Splice, we have Loop Cloud, we have all of these things where everybody has access to the same record pool, right? And they're using the same loops and they're using the same stuff. Well, modular allows you to create your own thing from scratch from voltage from like zero negative you know five volts all the way up to 12 and nobody else is going to sound like me because i'm creating these sounds from voltage and you don't know where it's coming from so it's a and it's a relationship with the machines because the machines have a mind of their own as well like people know moog is the most famous you know modular synth company out there uh shout out bob moog r.i.p um and the people that got hooked on that are the same people that are here doing my bap and other things like that. So no two improv modular artists, uh, golden shrimp guild is the guild that I'm joining on Twitch, the biggest group on there and everybody sounds different and it's a wonderful thing. So it takes me back to the days when, like we were talking about everybody sounded very, very unique. Like people put um, Black Sabbath up against Deep Purple all the time because they were around the same. They they sounded extremely different, yeah. but they were they still sounded enough to where you could put song after song on the same mixtape, and it would still feel you know nothing felt out of place. Yeah. So for me professionally, uh, exploring more modular live synth jams to get people out and exposed to that, uh, some more healing music through music therapy and other things that I'm planning for my company, Vision House Studios, that'll be coming up. I'll be making announcements about that in 2024, later 2024, some things I'm building and working on. And wherever the river is going to take me at this point. And I'm joining the Music Business Mentorship Program, which I think everybody listening should do, okay? Get with John. I don't know if you're going to make this first class. I'm trying to make this first class to get it out the way. So... We can help everybody on the business aspect of what we're doing as creatives. I'm not saying that because he's my friend. I'm saying that because he's my friend and he knows what he's talking about. Obviously, he's filled in so many blanks for me and just strategic, specific questions that I had through his own personal experience. He's lent his um, tutelage and information and advice to me so far. And you would not believe how many situations this has helped in in this short period of time. Because I was able to grasp the information, apply it to things that I had been working on already that hit a wall until I had the information and it got me over the wall. So shout out to John for that here. <laughs> I know this is his show, but however, like, my God, <laughs> thank you. You kind of stuck with me at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, I'm so happy. Uh, I don't know if you could tell, but I was grinning ear to ear because I'm so into this this modular synth mod bap. Is that yeah, yeah. That's that is 
to me, just a whole new world, a whole new genre that I'm super excited to get into. I, you just opened up a whole new door of music for me. I'm going to go on Twitch when we get off here. I'm going to look at Golden Shrimp. I'm going to come to your tech treasure tronics show. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm super into all this. It's, it's, I, I love it. I love discovering new things really, really pumps me up. And it just gets back to that whole optimism thing. There's just, there's just a never ending sea of new creativity that's coming our way. And I love, I love it. I love being a part of it. I want to see it and experience it uh, and do it firsthand. And I'm so blessed to have you on this show and I'm so blessed to know you. So thank you very much for lending your time and your talents uh, to us here at the Music Business Mentorship and everything that you're doing. I, I've, I've got a shout out to um, the MRC, Music Resource Center Cincinnati, where you are an instructor. Shout out to Xavier University, where you are also an instructor. Just all the things you're doing, man, to bring uh, bring music and creativity and and overcome obstacles for the folks who are coming up uh, behind us. I, I I my hat is off to you, sir. Thank you very much. And thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, I, it's it's a true pleasure, an honor to have you. And for all of you who are listening, uh, please tune in next time. We've got another great show coming up uh, as. We keep rolling these things out. We hope there's lots of golden nuggets, but definitely check out Mr. Watt, check out Vision House Studios, check out everything he's a part of, and then join us back here next time for another edition of the Music Business Mentorship.